This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Hi everyone, I'm Jane Tara and I'm chatting to authors and experts about their self-help, wellness and personal development books. If you're looking for ways to be happy, be well and be inspired, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Better Reading B. Rachel Coops is an actress and writer best known for her roles in Life Support, McLeod's Daughters and All Saints and is currently a presenter on Australia's beloved Play School. In 2004, she was awarded the Martin Bequest Travelling Scholarship and the Ian Potter Cultural Trust to study in Paris with world-renowned master clown Philippe Gaulier. Rachel has now written a memoir, Paris for Beginners, that charts both that time in her life and a more recent trip back to Paris to recapture some of that magic. She's here today to talk about it. Welcome. I'm so pleased you're here. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, Rachel. It's a wonderful book. It kind of has that sort of feel of almost French, which was one of my favourite sort of travel memoirs when it came out. But it's that sort of for younger women. And I feel like this really captures the experience of what it's like to travel or spend time somewhere when you're older and you've got all those responsibilities and you're trying to capture some, you know, something from another another time in your life. And uh, it's uh, it's for anyone who's listening who loved almost French when you were younger, you will adore Paris for Beginners now. <laughs> it's, um, it's, have you had that comparison much with the book? Uh, it's interesting, I guess, because our, our generation, from mm. people from our generation, there's definitely a uh, it was a quite a pivotal book because mm. it was an Australian author as well and her experience in Paris. But surprisingly, a lot of other people, other generations don't have the same relationship with almost French that mm. we did. And as you say, I think the difference with this book, and when I started writing it, I never intended it to be about a woman of a certain age, a, a Gen X woman with young child, aging parents, all the rest of it, the generation that we're part of that are still very alive and feel like we've got a lot of life left in us. Mm. <laughs> Going back to a time when we were younger and I don't think you can get to your 40s, late 40s, early 50s without being through the ringer in some way. Of course, for all of us, there's a sliding scale uh, depending on our circumstances, our privilege, but you can't be rattled a little by the experience of life. And so I guess the, the big difference is returning rather than just writing about the experience of being young. And we all, I also have, have had a few people say it's sliding doors, which again is our generation. You don't even yes, remember sliding doors. Yes, yeah, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. If you're our age, mm. for that thing of reflecting back and going, what could have been, what if? Oh, yes, yeah. Absolutely. Look, I love, I mean, you captured me right from page two 
You're right here. I'm returning to the place where it all began, the city that forged me, that took me across the threshold from youth to adulthood and shaped me into the woman I am today, the place that taught me to play, dream and love, that encouraged me to live large, not mundane, to be a giant and not make myself small. I loved that. And then you mention a Welsh word, um, and I don't know the pronunciation. Horaeth. Horaeth. It's a longing, homesickness, yearning and nostalgia for a person, place or time, you know, a a feeling of grief of something irretrievably being lost, something you just can't get back. Paris is my heroeth and I've decided I'm going to get it back. I was just like, so for me, Tokyo was my my place. You were Paris, I was Tokyo and I've done the same as you, gone back to it. Uh, in more recent years to try and recapture that. And uh, so so I absolutely loved your book and your experience of returning to Paris. Just tell our listeners a little bit about the book. So at the end of, after I finished my first book, which was written in the, in lockdown, second lockdown. Yes. <laughs> it's like a blur. I know. It's just like one long period of time. <laughs> oh, honestly. And I did that single parenting in six weeks. I kind of had signed that book deal three days before we went into lockdown, not knowing we're going to into lockdown and then homeschooling and all the rest of it was, it was a a really tough time, but I did it, finished the manuscript, got out of lockdown, had a coffee with Kelly, my publisher. And she said, we love it. Are you thinking about anything else? Have you got other stories that, and Interestingly, it is the way that I work. Whenever I'm, I can't kind of break through on a creative idea. I try and I write something else. And general, I don't know if you've experienced that, Jane, but sometimes by working creatively on something else, you open up an idea that you've had for a long time, but you haven't quite found the way in. And I said, I've always wanted to write about that time in Paris and what it's like to potentially have found the love of your life in that window when we're not quite adults. And I think a lot of people, a lot of women especially do, we find that person and your soulmate, the the person that you've waited for, but then moving into that time of life where you, you haven't quite done all of the exploring and adventure and what happens when we do that. Can you, can you survive? Who survives that? So this was the initial kind of seed for the idea, right? And I'd always wanted to write about Philippe and my time with him. I'm Paris, but I definitely didn't know what the story was about, what the book was about. And so I sat with it. And then that same month, I got a diagnosis. I had been experiencing pain for years, quite substantial pain through exploration and then working with a neurosurgeon and then uh, a shoulder surgeon. We discovered I have a very large tumor in my left humerus, which, and this was around Omicron. So it's like, Merry Christmas, you have this, we think you have a very rare form of cancer, don't get COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, to assuage any fears, I had my re-scan again, I have every six months and I got my results yesterday and it's still stable. And so as it's all turned out, I'm just, I'm under surveillance, a, a long period of surveillance. But at the time, I didn't know that. And so I think all of these things happened at once and then borders opened And I booked a ticket to Paris at Easter. It was my first child-free trip in 10 years of single Mm. parenting. And I chose to go back to Paris and I think revisit that time and 
try to get that feeling back, not really knowing what was going to happen with the tumor where I was at. We were very early days of exploration. And then I came back and I said to Kelly, I don't know what the book's about anymore because I can't take present me out of it. The late 40s, Rachel, who's been through so much and looking back at that time of my life overshadowed the experience of being there itself mm. and as a young person. And so that, I guess, was the, the seeds of the book. And once I made peace with that and brought her with me, mm. brought present me with me, the story emerged very, very quickly. But it is definitely an exploration about, it is a love letter to Paris, of course, and my mm. Paris, because everyone's Paris is so different. It's not mm. the same as almost French and, and her experience mm. of Paris. Or my one of my best friends, Jane, went to theatre school. Jane Tuttle has written two books on her third about, we were there at the same time, different theatre schools. Mm. She had a very different experience and very different relationship with Paris. Mm. And so... And that's I the key, you- isn't it? Relationship with, I've always said this to people, that you have relationships with places and they can change over time. And as you say, you can't get away from yourself who you are now. And it's like having coffee with an old boyfriend. There's always you now looking at that person and it might even change the shape of of how you remember the relationship. And so, you know, that certainly happens when you return to a place where you have that longing for. And I don't think it ever it, it ever gets rid of the longing. Like, you, you, <laughs> no, it, it just, it's there all the time. I went back and lived in um, Tokyo for three months a few years ago and it wasn't the same Tokyo for me. And yet Japan mm. for me is still my other place in the world that I love so much. And I yearn for that place that, you know, I experienced when I was younger, but, oh, it's gone. (laughs) It hasn't, it hasn't, because I feel like when you do go back to those places, even though they've changed, you reconnect with a part of yourself, Mm. that there is an innocence and a vulnerability and a a part of you that gets sparked. Mm by a particular place. And for me, it definitely reignited that again in a different way, because as you say, we've changed and and the place has changed, but I can literally get onto the tarmac. I get in the Uber and she's back. You know, that part of me that is creative and obsessed with art and culture and so happy to sit and have a coffee and watch. And I get so frustrated by people who go, what do you do in Paris though? You just like sit and have a coffee and look at art. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> isn't that awesome that in Sydney, I feel so compelled all the time to be, I feel so guilty if I haven't gone for a walk and done yoga and meditated and done all the school run around and seen my people and connected with my family. I get to Paris and I can sit two hours and a coffee and me and the street is enough. Yes. And that person, connecting with that person, for me, will be a lifelong joy. That I don't think will go away ever. I, mm. I, and this is why I think we, there's so many books, so many memoirs, travel memoirs, because it only happens when you're taken out, you're unplugged from the you that everyone has created and life has created, and you get plugged into this place where you can epically mess up and you don't have account- the same kind of accountability. Like you don't have as many eyes on you. 
and you can play with possibilities and then leave them behind Mm, mm. and then go back and see that person again. (laughs) Mm. But also like with relationships with people, I find that not every place brings out, draws out these qualities in you that you end up falling in love with. You love that. That's why you love Paris because you're a certain person in Paris. When I'm in Tokyo, when I'm in Japan, there's uh, I'm a certain Jane that I really enjoy being her. You know, I've lived in London, New York, Vienna. Like I've, you know, I've never ever experienced what I experience in myself when I return to Japan. It's a real deep connection with myself that being there lends to. And it sounds to me, certainly from reading your book, that that's what you find in yourself when you're in in Paris. So you, talk to me about what led you to France in the first place. It's so random <laughs> you know, mm. because I grew up working class, very working class in a Sydney, like Dremoyne, before Dremoyne was a fancy waterfront suburb. It was not. We were, it was all, my mum and I shared an apartment with another single mum and her kids. We walked to school with ice cream buckets on our heads. So that I the loved that when you were swooping, that, yeah. You know, like got sunburnt all the time. Mm. I don't know you remember, if you remember Solar Cane. Mm. So it was so far from Paris. And my, my nan reflected when I was a little bit older and I, fell in love with the city when I first went, that when I was five or six, I told her I was going to live in Paris one day and came out of nowhere. We'd done, we'd learned some French words at preschool, uh, papillon, papillon, butterfly, butterfly. I, I remember, and I remembered that since I was little. So that, that was probably the only little seed that was planted, but I always had this pull to the city. Growing up, I had a nanny who was British and had studied with Collier and she would She's a wonderful, wonderful act- actress and playwright. And she would come to school dressed up as a clown to pick us up and was hilarious and made outfits for us. We made a little band called the City Kids. My two girlfriends, closest girlfriends, Lucy, Emily and I, and would make out, would perform for our parents, make our parents watch at their 80s parties with all the coloured cigarettes <laughs> and, you know, such an um Paris upbringing. But there were these little threads. And so Sarah, having gone to Gaulier, I was so obsessed with her growing up and I guess I'd always thought maybe one day I would study with her acting teacher and I did that when I was 18. The first time I went to Paris with two girlfriends, I had that same feeling that I get every time I go back and I landed and that drive out of the airport where you you suddenly drive into Haussmann Paris, which is that very specific mm-hmm. architecture, the beiges and the dirtiness and at the same time this breathtaking kind of intangible connection I felt with this beautiful, beautiful place and sitting on a balcony in a friend's brother's apartment, three of us stayed there and with our coffee in our big bowl or hot chocolate it might have been, whatever, hot hot chocolate, coffee, and we'd sit there and I'd look out and just go, oh my God, these, and French women were so different Mm. to Australian women. I was so anxious and insecure and always on the move when I was young. And these women were just so wild and their messy hair and confident. And so it started really young and I don't really know why. 
But then once I studied with Gaulier, I did a short workshop with him. I knew one day I would go back. But I came back to Sydney and was acting professionally, did a unit, an economics degree. And even through my economics degree, I was acting professionally right through my 20s, but always felt like a bit of an imposter. And until then, Gaulier's school had actually been in, in London. The British government took him there and gave him a grant for a decade. And then his school went back to Paris. And I lost a very dear friend, which propelled me to go, God, you, you only live once, I'm young. I'm a bit, I never really felt like I was a proper actor because I never went to drama school, mm. did an economics degree. And I bit the bullet and applied for a scholarship and then won this other award, which meant I could go. I had my tuition covered. Such a privilege. I don't know how I could have done it otherwise. So yeah, I embarked on this year, which ended up being becoming three years. At a time when I was fairly settled in Sydney, I was working as an actor. I had a really lovely boyfriend. We'd been together for years. He was an actor as well. Had a little Art Deco apartment in Kings Cross. Things were kind of great, but I had never pursued that dream, A, of being in Paris and B, of studying with Gaulia. And I guess the two things came together at that moment it was meant to be. And tell our listeners a little bit about the school. I, I, I'd i heard of Gollier. My ex actually had studied mask work and committed a latte and he went to Lecoq in Paris, mm. which is another drama school there. So just kind of give anyone who has never heard of him, get, just explain what that is, what that means. <laughs> mm. So he's probably the most infamous clown and French theatre teacher in the world outside of Lecoq, the school that you refer to, he studied with Lecoq mm. and separated himself out. He he created his own school because he has a bit more of an obsession with working with text. He was not, our work was very physical, but the Lecoq actors are, um, it's much more rigorous physical practice and work and much more disciplined, I would say. And they have to do an autocore every week where they present work every week. And Gaulier was like, not everything should be presented, <laughs> right? Like, so he was he was always searching for a moment of magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's he's known to be brutal, even more so now in the landscape of today. You know, I went almost twenty years ago prior to our understanding, deeper understanding now of mental health and Me Too and all sorts of things that, on reflection wouldn't a lot of his school wouldn't fly now and I, I can see that on his when you apply for the school there's it's a bit more rigorous now it was rigorous back then but I think you could have slipped through the net without really understanding what he does but he's known to be very brutal in order to create moments of magic he doesn't strip back the actor in the same way that I think a lot of drama schools do over years it's you're on stage and you either show your soul every day or you leave the stage and mm. it's that simple. So we would get up each day, we'd get up. Sometimes we got lots of instruction as to what was happening. Sometimes we didn't get much and that was intentional and we would try something. Mm. And when he'd had enough, when you weren't, when you didn't show your soul or you weren't magic, he would hit his drum and that was the end of the exercise. <laughs> And if he hit the drum and just said, you sit, you knew, you knew that you were really like unwatchably bad and it was terrible. 
if he hit the drum and said, oh, uh, Rachel, what she does, uh, do we think this Australian, uh, oh, I want to pay money to watch her like this? Or I think never in my life this woman, uh, she is Boeing 747, uh, like st street performer in uh, not Sydney, but Adelaide, a very boring back lane. Uh, or she, then you knew, okay, I was bad, that I, but I wasn't that bad. I need to give more. But for example, sometimes it took, you know, 10 glasses of water in my face before he would let me speak as Ophelia in my scene with a Spanish Hamlet because I was so fucking boring, breaking the balls of everyone. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Look, I, I'm a bit old school with it. I studied at the ensemble studios here in Sydney and ah. that doesn't exist anymore. But our sort of main teacher there who took over from Hayes Gordon, Zika Nesta. She used to do a similar thing. When you were shit, she would do this noise. She would go, ick, ick. <laughs> and, and you knew if you heard an ick, you just had to sit down and shut up and just deal with it. And, of course, people would just have breakdowns over this. But it's a tough industry too. You need to be strong. You need to be resilient, you know, and that's what they're building as well as, pushing you to find your your talent or your creativity or whatever they're actually I think you know building resilience and um, that's not a bad thing in the arts because it's a tough gig and the magic that he does find I haven't seen again mm. the moments I saw in that room and this is the beauty his ex-students Roberto Benini Sasha Baron Cohen, mm. Sasha writes talks about him all the time that's how he found his characters Emma Thompson these extraordinary artists are extraordinary because he creates a room where magic is possible. So we all believed that for each and every one of us it was. And then you get to see that in people. There's no, and the other thing is people say, well, he doesn't tell me why I'm so shit. And you have, like you said, you have to sit with that. He'd say, you have to be in the tunnel. You have to be in the tunnel. I am so horrible because only you can figure out why you're not willing to show that part of yourself. And for me, it was vulnerability. It was so hard. I could be funny. I could be smart. I could be, but on stage, it was so hard for me to be vulnerable. And his perspective was, I can't, I'm not a psychologue. You want a psychologue, you go to a psychologue. It's not for, mm. it's not for the theater to be psychologists. It's not for the audience to help you figure that out. It's, for you to figure out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Well, actually, that's a really great life lesson, not just, you know, an acting lesson, isn't it? You wrote the book, um, Find Your Strength, which you call a guide to thriving on the battlefield of life. I I think it's a particularly good self-help book. In the introduction, you write, there are many times in life when throwing down your weapons in surrender are not an option and you have to fight. I want to briefly discuss this because I think that, you know, so often we're looking for easy answers or be positive, think positive, everything's going to change. And this book really talks about how sometimes you just need to pick up a weapon and go for it in life. And one of the chapters I loved was duty. Not many Mm. self-help books talk about duty, actually. Because it sucks. (laughs) <laughs> right? Because it sucks, you know. But the fact is that we, we yeah, that duty or service is another one in the same chapter, mm-hmm. you know, be of service. And that's not just on a global stage with fame as you write. It's be of service to your kids or to your neighbour or to, I actually, a few years ago now rescued a, a, I I have a habit of rescuing animals, but I rescued a particularly troubled dog who I still have. I ended up adopting him. But when I first got him, he, it was just a nightmare. So uh, rescuing a, like a rescue animal is very different to rescuing a dog that has been abused, severely abused. So, Mm. and I can remember I got to one point, just went, oh my God, this is so bad. I can't, I don't know how to handle it. And it was almost like a voice just said, just wake up and be of service to this dog every day. So I don't have to love him. I don't, and that grew definitely, but I just decided I was going to be of service to this dog, you know, And uh, my partner's a Buddhist and he once said to me, you know, that might just be your whole purpose in life, that you were obsessed with dog. It's that simple and that beautiful. So, you know, I think we often think in really we paint broad pictures about what our life is meant to be and whatever, you know, but I love in your book that you narrow that back to, and you use Buddhism all the way through it, to accept your duty in life and to be of service and talk to the listeners a bit about find your strength. Well, I I think it's a really beautiful point you make. So I'll start, I'll stick with that because there's Mm. so many layers in the book, but I really do. A lot of people resonated with the idea of purpose because in today's world, there's such a conversation around impact. I want to make impact in this Mm. world and I want to create change. And what is my deeper purpose? And 100% we have to spend some time in stillness and with ourselves figuring out, do I want to spend the precious moments of my life doing this thing that I'm doing, right? But that is a very privileged position to be in. Mm-hmm. Like not, a, not everyone has the capacity or the space to do that. So does that mean that if I'm not in a position socially, economically, whatever else, that I'm not creating impact in the world. And I find that firstly, very tough to sit with. But secondly, the translation of where this comes from, this idea of dharma or purpose, or it can also mean duty. It's Mm. so Sanskrit is such a rich language. There's so many layers to it. There's so many meanings. And that's where a lot of this conversation, particularly in the yoga world and the spiritual world, came about because the Bhagavad Gita, one of the major texts, talks about it's a book on dharma, finding Mm. your purpose. But actually, it's a story of a warrior 
who has to go to war? Who doesn't want to go to war? Mm. (laughs) He doesn't want to be a a soldier. He doesn't want to be, but he is. Mm. And he played his cards and he lost and he finds himself on the battlefield. Then he has a panic attack and says to his, his chariot, his driver, who happens to be the universe or God, it's a conversation between universe and everyday man. It's like, I don't want to fight. And God doesn't go, you're right, let's just love each other. No, he says, you've got to take action in this mm. moment. Everything you, that led you to here means you have to take this ne- next step. And I, I feel like we miss the precious moments of our life because they're not what we want them to be. And there's a lot of suffering and grief in where we're at. Like, I don't mm. want to be here because my purpose is actually to be, you know, doing X, Y, Z. I struggled with it when I had my son and I was a single parent from when he was born. And before that, I'd been traveling and acting and working in residencies in remote communities and Mm. feeling like I was of a lot of service to young people across Australia. And then I was stuck, unable to pursue an acting career, unable to live the life that I had, very frustrated, very um, resentful of, and I grieved this life Mm. and I didn't enjoy parenthood. And one day I freaking woke up and I was like, you're going to miss this. Your kid is four, Rachel. And if, I, if you don't make peace with what is and say, this is where I'm at right now. I am a single parent. I'm going to enjoy not all of it. Let's not pretend that all of parenthood is fun. It is not. No, but, but I'm be going present for it. Be present. And in every mm. moment, like to... to to get the little the little drips of magic. And I think there is a lot of purpose to be found in our everyday life. Mm. And yes, we're going to find ourselves caring for aging parents or caring for a partner or caring for a sick dog at some point. And it's going to be a major inconvenience to mm. our greater purpose of potentially, but I want to be doing this other thing. What if your purpose, as you said, is actually just to be there for that person? And I think if we can take that in the tiny, so for example, I know someone at the moment who is suffering, there is nothing I can do about it. And they are withdrawing a little bit from me at times, and that is challenging, but it is my job to figure out how to best serve them because they're the one who's suffering, not me, not make it about me. Yes. And be it a little bit of disease in the relationship. So how can I be there for them without doing it in a way that's going to make me feel, oh good, they know that I'm there. They, I think we have to do it in the tiny. Mm. And I think that that in fact that's my duty right now in my family with my mm. friends that's got to be enough. Mm. Like it has to is, be enough. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing. We need anything extra, great. That's all extra. But you know, what I loved about your book is that, you know, you actually talk about that being enough, you know, the sit in the present moment of service of your duty. Don't sort of go, well, you know, if only I got rid of all of my duty, my life would be perfect because I'd be doing what I want. It's actually not what life is about. Actually, winding both of your um, books together here, my son, my younger son, when he was 13, was struggling enormously at school, severely dyslexic, and it was impacting his emotional health. So, I took him out of school and I took him to Japan for three months. He's part Japanese. And I thought I'm going to, I didn't want to pander to it. I didn't want to, you know, sort of like wrap him up in cotton wool. I wanted him to pick up his 
sword and fight like mm. a warrior. So I took him on a pilgrimage to um, Miyamoto Musashi's cave. He was the greatest ever Japanese swordsman. And he lived um, the end of his life in a cave right down the south end of Japan, Kyushu. And he meditate, He meditated on a, a rock for two years and wrote the great Bushido text, um, the Book of Five Rings. So I went, right, I want my son to go into battle here, to not surrender to this, to know that life does get tough mm. and um, and that he has the tools, you know, when it does get tough. He can remember that he's got, you know, a bit of that samurai in him or whatever. So, mm. that's, what, so that's what I did. And actually at that time I spent three months in Japan also looking for my Hiraeth, Hiraeth, the, mm. the reconnection myself to Japan. So, so both, of your, both of your books, you know, sitting on my nightstand at the moment, just like, oh, yeah, reading Aww. that, reading that and Aww, telling my so girlfriends beautiful. about it. So what do you, going back to um, Paris for Beginners, what do you hope that readers can take out of that? I hope that it inspires young people who are considering taking a year for themselves Mm. or two years. And again, I know this is coming from a place of privilege. If it's not a year, like a period of time just to, to leave everyone and everything they know and try to discover who they really are beyond all of that. I would love them to do that, that it, that it inspires someone to go, yeah, you can, you know, you'll survive whatever, whatever it is, you'll survive and you'll, you'll learn something about yourself to inspire maybe people to see a part of Paris that they don't always see. But mostly I hope that for women of my age and my generation, it inspires reconnecting with that part of themselves. And for us to know that, because I think it's so true, right? That that the indulgence of those days is lost on the young. (laughs) True. (laughs) But to, to really reconnect with that part of themselves that could for me, it's that thing of clinging on the back of a motorbike to a French man and oh, smelling yes. the leather and the <laughs> and the perfume and the the hope of it all and the the freedom of it all and to know that that part of us is still there and that we have a lot a lot of life left. Mm. You know mm. that it's not time to sit down and make peace with the past. That it's we can keep reconnecting with that part of ourselves, whatever that means, whether it means travel or. Because the other thing that's really I found quite shocking is that so many women say to me, God, I wish I could do that, just take a week for myself away from my kids and my partner or whatever, but it would not be possible. And I find that so tough to make peace with. I guess Mm. it's the one flip side of being a single parent is that I could do that because my son was with his dad in Perth for two weeks. Mm. But I feel like it's tough that we can't find time for ourselves Mm. As we get older, that we feel, or as w- when we're in that time of having kids and marriages and work and all those layers, and it's just a lot. It's mm. a lot. We're all we're all in survival. So I hope it inspires a way of doing that, of finding a day or a week or just a time to plug into that part of ourselves to remember that it's she's really, still there. It's it it's also really like, what are your dreams? for yourself, Mm. you know, separate Mm. from your children, separate from families. Uh, You know, I'm I'm moving into, I've been a single mum as well, but I'm moving into more of an empty nest phase now. So my oldest has just moved to, well, earlier this year, moved to Vancouver. My youngest is at uni. 
your book had me, I've traveled extensively, but I was back Googling Airbnbs in Kyoto and, <laughs> you know, and, and then I went, and if not Japan, maybe Greece, maybe, you know, so I've definitely, it's, it's sparked something and you used the word spark at the beginning of this podcast. And I love that. And it sparked something in me for sure. I do think our dreams are not over. We have to stop this idea. And as I say, why, the wifey character, Tony Perrin. I have a wifey had, too. Yeah, my bestie is called wifey. Everyone knows we're called wifey. So I loved that. So wifey has a name, Tony. Yes. Tony. And she rec- was recording songs when we lived in that apartment almost 20 years ago. And when I came back from that trip, she just recorded this song that was blowing up on the dance charts, but it was the first time she'd recorded since those days. I loved and that. And when I read it, I went like, and listened. It was great. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> we're not done. We've got stuff to do. So will you go back to Paris? <laughs> I will. I have, it's so funny that you, you talked about that three months because I have this dream. I don't know how I'm going to make it a possibility. My son's in year four. I have this dream of taking him for a few months. I don't know how it's feasible or possible right now. I don't know when, but I would love that time with him. And I would love for him to be in that city and I guess connect to a different part of masculinity or understanding who he, who he is than what that, that finding the sword that you're talking mm. about. But it's resilience in a different way because I also feel like he needs that. He needs to, to leave the layers of safety of what we have here in our little cocoon. And I would love to do it with him there. So that's going to happen, Rachel. I can see it. There might even be another book there. So look, the book is Paris for Beginners. Rachel Coops, I have really, I just could keep talking to you all day. We could add wine and chat, but um, thank you so much for coming on, (laughs) on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.